for those who are gathering here today or visiting, um, welcome to you. And uh, we're in the middle of a series called Glorious Humanity. Um, just to give you a little bit of context for, for where we are. And uh, well, last weekend, a big mistake was made. I made the headlines in the news. No, it wasn't something I said in the sermon last week, although there were probably some things that could have made headlines. Um, I'm sure Dave heard this, um, but there was a big mistake made and the Adelaide Crows missed out on their final chances. Yeah, yeah, you've all heard, yeah. Robbed. All because an umpire, a goal umpire, made a bad call. Believing the ball had touched the post when it hadn't, the Crows got only a point and they should have had six, which would have given them the game and a spot in the finals. You've got a feel for the Crows, don't you? And you've got a feel for the... <laughs> okay, no factions here. You've got a feel for the goal umpire just a little bit too, don't you? He's paid the penalty for his error. He won't be goal umpiring for the rest of the season. He might not want to ever again. It's a pretty um, daunting place to be right under the goalpost there with a the crowd behind you. Imagine the reception he's going to get next time he comes out. But it was a costly error, wasn't it? For the Crows particularly. But I wonder how we'd respond or how all the football fans around the nation would respond if because of that error, the suggestion was raised that all umpires should step down and the game should go on without them. Without any umpires. Just let the players work it out for themselves. They could do it, surely. They can make all the decisions, enforce the rules. And why not? That umpire proved, didn't he, that the umpires, those who are making the decisions, those with authority, they can make it. They can get it wrong. So why should we trust them at all? Why should we have any umpires? Surely, maybe they're not all corrupt. They don't always get it wrong. But the evidence is clear. If one or two can get it wrong, surely they can all get it wrong. So just do away with it all, once and for all. I'm sure the players would manage. In fact, they'd be better off, wouldn't they? No. <laughs> Foolish suggestion, isn't it? And I know, like most illustrations, that one will have its flaws. It wasn't an intentional error. It wasn't a blatant use or abuse of authority. However, when it comes to matters in life, in the church, in our homes, under God, when it comes to matters of authority and submission, not only on the football field, but in all those other areas and in the scriptures, it has often been argued, and recently in the last few decades, that because there are times and places where such authority has been abused, where people have got it wrong, then we should do away with it altogether. In the church and in our homes. And many don't see that suggestion being as foolish as the one I just made about the football. Because it suits us, or so we think. Last week we saw how our relational morals, particularly of our day and in our nation as well as around the world, our natural way of relating, we're looking at Romans 1, how a lot of those things have been turned on their head, not simply because our modern culture has gone liberal and progressive, choosing to go their own way, but because of sin, because we've exchanged the glory and the truth of God for a lie. And it's not just us having our way, God's actually given us a shove. He's handed us over to the desires of our hearts. This week, this morning, in a similar way, I want to help us consider the true nature of authority and submission. 
Because in a series titled Glorious Humanity, if we're going to look at who we are under God as human beings, we need to know in the glory that's been restored to us in Christ, do those things of authority and submission still have a place? And if they do, how are they they meant to function in our lives, in this glorious humanity that Christ has redeemed? We need to be able to think biblically about these things because again the world is telling us one thing even many in the church are telling us one thing but what are, what is God telling us what are we hearing from him and his word and so as with last week uh, a little bit different to maybe how we normally just stick with one passage and expand that and that's sometimes dangerous in itself and I'm not going to attempt to address every passage um, that regards headship and submission and authority and all these things we'd need much more time than we've got this morning We'd need about three sermons on each, I think. But I want to give us some foundation and some some groundwork for us to think and consider the issues of authority and submission in our lives. I will be honest with you and confess that this morning I preached with maybe a greater degree of fear and trepidation, fear and trembling, that every preacher should feel at every point they stand behind a pulpit. But some of the things we're going to hear this morning are not popular. And they're not politically correct in our day. And also realise maybe we're biting off more than we can chew for one message. So I pray the Lord would just speak to us and give us ears to hear and hearts to seek his will and his word. My prayer this morning is that what we hear is not just my ideas or my interpretation of ideas, but actually God's word to us this morning. And that we would be faithful to his word as we hear that and apply it in our lives. It needs to be said that there are many also who seek to be faithful to God's word, but who end up with different conclusions to what we might hear this morning. And I've listened to them, I've spoken with others, I've read articles, I've listened to things online, I've heard their arguments and contrary views, but I'm yet to be convinced by them. And until I am, I don't see my own position my own theology and application of these matters shifting in fact the more i've looked at these things in recent weeks including more and more at the various views the more i'm convinced of the things that we're going to hear this morning not less i also want to say before we get into the nitty-gritty of it that if something you hear this morning rubs you up the wrong way maybe it raises some concerns or questions go speak to nat (laughs) i'm running away on retreat this week for good no No, I actually want to genuinely want us all to hear God's word and also want to genuinely listen to people in these things, men and women, your thoughts, your concerns, any arguments to the contrary. So please don't be afraid to raise them with me or Nat, but I'm the one speaking this morning. So, But my prayer for myself and Nat and myself together with the elders is that the Lord would actually teach us as a church and the wider church And that he would shape us according to his will and his word. So that we as his people, his redeemed family here on earth, his new creation breaking out in this day, would actually give glory to him in the way we live, in his glorious design for us. Because I believe, as we'll hear later this morning, if we get this wrong, there's far more at stake than just who gets to preach or teach in a church. Far more at stake. I recognise there's a huge difference between a football team missing out on the finals, as big as that might be, 
and the damage that is done and has been done to people or persons, individuals, families, even whole nations who have had to live under oppressive and abusive authority. That's not the authority that the Lord would have for us in his word and in our lives. Sadly, such authority has been misused and abused in the church and in Christian homes where the roles and authority that God has given us have been used wrongly, oppressively, harmfully. Where that's happened, it needs to be addressed and addressed well and appropriately. Having authority and submitting to people under authority in the church and in our homes does not mean sweeping sin under the rug and moving on as though it never happened and trying to put it aside. Not at all. In fact, it actually places us under the authority of God and the civil authorities. And we should grieve when that authority is abused and when people are harmed. And we should give appropriate care and comfort to those who need it. And we should protect and care for one another as the flock of God together. But with that, as my illustration I hope brought through, the poor execution of authority, sinful and harmful as it sadly has been at times, does not mean that authority itself should be thrown out the window, that it should be removed from the equation. Ever since sin entered the world, a battle has been taking place. Last week we heard how that battle was a battle for worship. Who God is, who wants to be God, and who's going to worship God and who won't. It was a battle that sort of began and has been fueled by the temptations and the deceptive taunts of the evil one. And it's now to, that's all combined with the fear of judgment and death that has come because of sin. It's also a battle in Genesis 3 that's foretold in the curse upon the man and the woman before the Lord vanquished them from the garden. And you could say from that point on there's been a battle of the sexes. We'll look at that in a moment. At least one arena for that battle has been between men and women. And it's a battle which is very much alive today in the world as well as in the church. One only needs to open up their Bible and read aloud in church a few verses, Ephesians 5 or 1 Timothy 2, to quiet a room or at least make people uncomfortable for a moment or two, depending on the congregation and audience. And after a moment or two, you might then hear the sound of metal upon metal, metaphorically speaking, as swords are drawn for people to protect, defend and fight for their argument. Wives, submit to your husbands, Ephesians 5, as to the Lord. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Or 1 Corinthians 14, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. This is the word of the Lord. And yes, it's unfair just to quote single verses and not consider context and to pick out those simply directed to women only. So let me balance things a little. Husbands, love your wives. Ah, sounds easy. You've got the easy job, haven't we, fellas? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Nourish her and cherish her as Christ loves the church. 
That too is the word of the Lord. From Acts 20, where Paul farewells the Ephesian elders. Elders, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Or from Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, as I said, we don't have time this morning to look at each and every one of those passages or even consider the context for them all. Each of those passages are written and read uh, in a particular context and cultural context, and they're written to a people in their own particular context. We need to address that. We need to identify that and be aware of it. But we also need to recognise in each of those ones that I've read and many more, in each one there's also a connection made to God and to creation or to creation and to the divine order that God has designed for us to live in. And that needs to be identified and considered as we interpret those passages for today. Not putting the cultural context aside, but considering the creational and eternal context that they're written within, under God. Just as we heard at the beginning of this series from Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That's where it starts if we're going to consider what is man, what is woman, who are we? We start with God. We begin with God. So yes, the cultural aspects in all these passages need to be identified and addressed appropriately. So too, though, do the cultural aspects of our own day, which also have an influence in how we hear and read and interpret those passages. Did you hear what we heard from uh, 2 Timothy? All scriptures God breathed, good for correction, rebuking, equipping us for every good work. And yet there'll be a day, it's coming, Paul says, in his day as well as in ours, where people will have itching ears, wanting to hear what suits their own desires. And therefore they won't listen and they'll actually accumulate teachers. They'll get their own little group. I want to listen just to these ones because they, they say what I like to say. We come to church and I can nod and say, yep, I've been encouraged today because everything I heard agreed with me. Are we hearing God's word or just listening to stuff that suits our own hearts and desires? For example, with some fear and trembling, let's turn briefly to 1 Timothy 2, one of the more contentious passages. Here in second, our First Timothy chapter 2, Paul's instructing Timothy on how women and men should conduct themselves in the gathered assembly as we gather for church. And there are cultural aspects for us to consider. For example, in verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray. That's good. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Now, I'm not going to mandate because of that verse that every time someone prays, that's already happened this morning, we've had people praying, they didn't put their hands up. I'm not going to mandate that every time we pray here that we should have our hands raised. Paul's point here is that when we pray and when we gather, fellows in particular, do so without anger and without fighting, without quarrelling. If you're going to use your hands, lift them in prayer and praise to God, not in anger towards one another. 
Ladies, he says, adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire. Anyone got their hair braided this morning? I'm not going to stomp down on people and say, go fix up your hair because it's not according to... What's Paul saying here? He's saying, when you come and gather, don't try to draw attention to yourselves. Give praise to God. You're not to be the centre of attention. Dress in a way that's appropriate. So it's not about having specific things that Paul is making taboo, as in certain items of clothing, pearl earrings. No, he's actually saying, give praise to God. His point is one of modesty and self-control, being respectable in your appearance and conduct. So cultural aspects there that we can take into account for both men and women. And when he says a bit further on, let a woman, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. At that point, Paul's going against the culture of his day because a woman wasn't allowed to learn in the mixed gathering. But here he's saying, yes, she should. Let her. Make sure she has every opportunity to learn. Which we might think or add, oh, about about time. (laughs) It's a bit archaic. But no, that was a cultural matter right there and then for Paul to be addressing. And it's good and right for us to recognise that Paul actually here is more than happy to go against the culture of his day when it's right under God. But when he goes on further to say, I do not permit mobile phones to be on in church. (laughs) Sorry. A little bit of brevity might be good at this point. When he goes on further to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. If you keep reading, you'll recognize it's not a cultural reason he gives for that instruction. It's one of creation and then the fall. For, he says, Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he's not saying it's a cultural argument. He's saying this is a creational one and because of the fall. Now, Paul's not putting all the blame onto Eve. Adam did that, remember, back in the garden. This woman who you gave me. No, he's not putting all the blame on Eve. And fellas, just be warned. The apple hasn't fallen very far from that tree in the garden, has it? How often do you find yourself justifying your own sin and failures by blaming your wife for what she does or doesn't do for you? How quickly is it on our lips? Because of her. Because I know it happens because it happens in my heart and I don't think I'm unique in that way. So when that temptation comes, and it will be on your lips quicker than you think, bite your tongue. Repent. And there, lift up your hand. Maybe not in prayer, although that'd be good too, but in confession. And unlike Adam, say, it was me. I stuffed up. Would you forgive me? Paul is not putting all the blame on Eve here. Back in Romans, he states how sin came into the world through one man, putting the blame squarely on Adam's shoulders. But Paul is saying Adam was made first, then Eve, and Eve was deceived. 
And while he was deceived, <laughs> he's also implying here, well, Adam, he wasn't deceived, but he was there with her. We read that in Genesis. He willingly disobeyed God's command. What's Paul, what Paul is doing here, I think, as I understand it, is giving the reason why women should learn in the gathered church but not teach or have authority over men. Not because that's how it was in Paul's day and we need to change it today, nor because Paul's a misogynist and wants to keep things that way, but because God has so ordered things in creation, in his glorious design from the very beginning. He's made us male and female in his image, wonderfully made, equal, and yet with different roles, complementary roles. Read Genesis 1 sometime and just work through Genesis 1 and see that the authority and dominion, the fact that there's ruling taking place, is not just in humanity. It's how the sun rules over the day and the moon over the night. Creation itself relies on there being some dominion taking place. Exercise, though, under God's creational order and care. The woman, we are told both here and back in Genesis 3, was deceived and the man who was with her disobeyed God's word because the serpent drove a wedge between the two of them and between them and God with his little tantalising lies. Lies that began with planting a seed of doubt within the woman's mind as well as a seed of ambition. You could be like God. Don't worry about your husband. You do your thing. Just the thought that she would be better off if she took the lead and sought to be as God. And in the same moment, there's her husband, the man, failing to protect his wife, failing to heed God's word himself by not taking his role and protective responsibility in that moment. And maybe even he hadn't shared with her and taught her, let a woman learn, maybe Adam hadn't actually taught her what God had told him about the trees in the garden before she was made. Maybe, depending on how you read Genesis 1 and 2. But that's the first of many occasions in Scripture where the boundaries of the God-given roles and responsibilities are crossed and the outcome when they are is never good and when certain roles and responsibilities are abdicated from. And from that point on, part of the consequence, part of the curse God himself handed down as a result of that sin, God said to the woman in Genesis 3.16, Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That's one verse we need to all remember and consider as context when we read any of these matters about authority and submission. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, it's a verse that's taken up page after page in many books over the centuries. But I think one of the best ways to understand it is just look in the very next chapter of Genesis. Look in Genesis 4, where God is speaking to Cain. Cain's angry about his brother because God didn't accept his sacrifice. And God speaks to him. And he says in verse 7, If you do well, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, or the ESV has contrary to you, the same words as God said to Genesis, uh, to the woman in Genesis 3, but you must rule over it. It's almost the exact same wording. 
I don't think God is saying, Cain, sin is sexually attracted to you. It desires to have you in that way. And therefore, I don't think we can read that into Genesis 3, although it might be in that area of life and intimacy where power and authority and submission is used and abused by both parties. Sin's desire here is for Cain, or as I said, the ESV puts it, is contrary to him. That might sound confusing, but I don't think it is. Sin in its desire is not for Cain, as in it's not for his good. It's out to get him. It's against him. And Cain can feel it. It's a battle waging within himself. And that's been expressed in his anger and his guilt towards his brother and towards God. There's a predatory nature to this desire. Sin is out to get him. It's crouching like a lion ready to pounce. It wants to take over and control him. That's what God says to Cain about sin. And in the same words, he says to the woman about her desire for her husband. Because of sin, because of guilt, you're going to want his role. You're going to want to take over. And that's how it's going to be for all humanity in our relationships from the fall onwards. See what I mean about a battle of the sexes? As I said, not very popular today, is it? And not politically correct. Some progressive scholars will argue that in the gospel, because of Christ and the redemption that is won for us, all of that has been cancelled out. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Christ has become cursed for us and that curse no longer stands. And so both woman's desire and man's rule have been done away with in Christ. Except I only need to look out the the windows here or in your own gardens to see that there's still weeds growing in your garden, aren't there? (laughs) We are still living under aspects of that curse, aren't we? Others go on, quoting from Galatians, that in Christ there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So surely any notion of authority and submission have been done away with because we're all one. Now, there's good scholars, male and female, and they know their Hebrew and their Greek better than I do, and they argue that way and suggest much of what we read in the New Testament on this matter is culturally influenced and therefore needs to be interpreted and filtered evenly accordingly. In recent weeks, I listened to a lecturer in systematic theology argue that way, looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and in particular the wonderful unity of all things in Christ. God's great will is to unite all things in Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. And God's given gifts to the church and the people that he's given to equip the saints, the whole church for the works of ministry, male and female, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And it's wonderful because we're all involved in this work of ministry to build one another up, to which I agree wholeheartedly. Except the strong and obvious inference that day was that everyone should be able to exercise those God-given gifts without any exclusion and without any authority structures in place other than Christ being our authority. And why not? If unity is the goal, we're all equal in Christ, surely we should all be able to do everything together. Which sounds good until you turn to the next chapter in Ephesians. And I'd have to say, what about chapter 5? 
because within the very context of this glorious unity that Paul's been speaking about and wonderfully proclaiming God's manifold wisdom in the church, to, sorry, to the rulers and authorities in the church, Paul goes on to instruct that church in what it means and what it looks like to be united and to be filled with the Spirit of God in our relationships and with one another. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, children obeying their parents, slaves obeying their earthly masters. Now, however all of that's worked out in our homes and our churches, and they will be different in different situations, but we cannot just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say submission and authority and headship no longer matter, can we? Not if we're reading Ephesians correctly. Claire Smith, a writer, says this. She's the wife of Rob Smith, if you know the, um, the song, some of the songs we sing of Rob's. One of the fallacies of modern feminist ideology is that for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. But you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having inferiority and superiority of dignity or value. See, authority and submission doesn't deny unity and equality. The glorious unity that God has restored to us in the church, in the now and not yet part of the new creation, that unity is not threatened or undermined by the different roles and responsibilities he gives us. In fact, I'd argue they're essential to that unity. Again, yes, there are cultural elements for us to consider both in the scripture and in our own day. But there are eternal aspects, biblical eternal aspects in play as well. Gospel aspects. For example, in Ephesians 5, it speaks about Christ and his bride, the church, doesn't it? If we're going to take away headship, we need to do away with Christ being the head of the church. That's what's at stake here. Do away with husbands and wives living according to God's word in loving submission and loving authority. Then we need to do away with the life-giving, sacrificial, serving love of Christ for us, his bride. I believe that's what's at stake here, at least in that text. And yes, we don't do it well, do we? Husbands or wives. But with the illustration we started with, does that mean we throw it all out? I don't think so. Finally, I want to spend a brief moment looking at God himself and how things are within the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit. Because as well as in our relationship with Christ as his bride being at stake, us, the church, the very nature of God lies behind these arguments. We've been made in his image. We've been made and redeemed to reflect the glory of God. And so if we do away with some of these things, then we're also saying that what we reflect must change as well. We're doing away with something of who God is. And so to do that, I want to turn to those passages of John that we had read earlier, John 8 to begin with. There's many places we could go. As I said, we're covering a lot this morning. In John 8, Jesus has been teaching the people, including the Pharisees, who knew their scriptures well about who he was, where he was from, who his father was. 
And as we read in verse 27, they did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about God the Father. And so he goes on to teach them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I, the Son of Man, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Here's the man Jesus speaking. Yes, it's him as man. Some would say, oh yes, but he gave up all his authority to come on earth and then he took it up. No, he's actually talking about himself as the son of man here. I do nothing on my own authority. Verse 29, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Here's the one that the Son of Man, the very one that Daniel saw in his vision coming to the Ancient of Days, the one who would be given dominion and rule and a kingdom that would reign forever. And he says, I only ever do what the Father has told me to do. I only ever say what my Father has told me to say. I only ever go where the Father has sent me. Not reluctantly, not because he's under compulsion and getting pushed by the Father, some divine form of child abuse, as some would argue. But as we read in the next passage, no, he does it out of love. Turn with me to John 14, verse 28. Here Jesus has been speaking of going to his Father's house where there are many rooms. You probably know the verses going to prepare a place for his disciples. Philip wants to see the Father. That'll be enough. And Jesus says, haven't you seen me, Philip? How long have you been with me? Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? There's this wonderful communion between the Father and the Son abiding together. Remember that. He is in me. I'm in him. And he says, I'm going to the Father. And when I come, when I go here, I will ask the Father, to send the Spirit. It's good that I go, because when I go, then the Spirit will come, the Spirit himself who is in union with the Father and the Son, and he's sent by the Father and the Son, not doing his own thing, but doing what the Father and Son have sent him to do. And Jesus says, if you love me, I'm going. If you love me, you'd rejoice that I'm going. Why? Because the Father is greater than I am. There's nothing better for Jesus than to go to his Father. It's a matter of joy, and part of that joy is because of the greatness of the Father, greater than Jesus, the Son. The Son who abides in the Father and the Father and the Son, they're one together. And yet the Father's greatness doesn't deny that union, does it? That sense of communion, that they're together in all that they do, doesn't destroy any of that or diminish the joy or the love that the Son has for the Father. In fact, the Son's obedience to the Father, even to death on the cross, as the context reveals. The ruler of this world is coming, verse 31. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Because he's, oh, please don't, he's going to get me if I don't do what he said. No, it's not that. So that the world may know that I love the Father. I submit to my Father. Because I love him.
God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The son so loves the father and us that he gives up his life for us. Earlier in John, Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Speak on your own authority, you seek, you just want all the praise and attention yourself. But not me, not Christ. He seeks the Father's glory. He never speaks on his own authority. Do as you please, say what you want. You're not free, you're just being selfish. The Son does as the Father commands. Submitting to and serving the Father in love. And therefore, as we're going to hear in a couple of weeks, the Father raises him up and exalts him and gives him a name that is above every name. When good, true, loving authority and submission is exercised, as to the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, Serving God and serving one another in love. Well, there we see it in the Godhead, don't we? The Father, the Son and the Spirit. There we see true and full communion, union, abiding in one another and abundant life. That's how it is for God. That's how it is for all of us, made and redeemed to his image. That's how it is for the church, sinners like us, restored to the image and glory of God, united in Christ, equal in our access to God and in our love for God and his love for us and for one another, and still in beautiful submission and authority, to be exercised only for the benefit and blessing of one another to the glory of God, not for our own ambition. It's not about power and status. Those verses I read earlier It's about responsibility, really, isn't it? If you've got authority, it's about responsibility. It's about serving one another, serving others. Not with selfish motive or ambition, but in God-given love to his praise and glory. Now, there is so much more we could say. Many more passages we could look at with a fine-tooth comb. But as I said, my prayer this morning is that In what we have heard, the Lord might give us a grounding with which to consider these matters in our lives and in our church life together to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, as we prayed earlier this morning out the back, just reminded that the cry of your church from the very birth has been Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who reigns and rules. He's the one in authority over all things. And yet even he is subject to you in loving obedience and faith. And so without lordship, without dominion, authority and submission, there'd be no gospel. There'd be no victory. But in your grace and your mercy and your love, you have made us, you've redeemed us, and you've restored us to something greater than we could ever imagine, sinners that we are. 
Father, we wrestle with some of these things personally. We wrestle with them in the church, not just here, but the world, worldwide church. And there's different views and interpretations, Father. Sometimes because of itching ears. Sometimes because scholarly minds see new things. And Father, we want to be faithful to you, not just to our desires or not to our desires at all, but faithful to you and your word. We don't want to put people in positions where they would be open to sin and temptation and failure, where others could be oppressed under their authority. Father, help us to exercise these things well in love, always remembering that we are under you, always remembering that any position or role, any gift is given for the building up of your church, not for putting up on pedestals or lording it over one another. And so, Father, we pray that you would keep us humble, keep us united in love, and keep us faithful to you and your word as we desire to love and serve you and one another in these things. We pray they would bear fruit in our lives, in our homes. Father, married or not, single, whatever our situation, children, young and old, these things are all matters for us to consider. And so we pray you would teach us, speak to us as we sang earlier, full obedience, reverence, and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.